Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Let them eat cake. You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. Because I have a dream. We happy few. We band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. That if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? The very first episode. Thank you for listening from the very beginning. I'm Neil White, and I'm joined, as I always will be, by my brother, David White. And David, thanks for joining me. Very glad to be here, Neil. So the idea behind this podcast is that every week, I'm going to ask the question, Oh brother, when art thou? And that's going to lead to some discussions about some interesting, strange, wacky, different times in history. David, where are you going to get your inspiration from for these stories you're going to tell us? Well, the goal is to get my inspirations from as many and as wide a variety of sources as possible uh, so that I'll be learning a little bit too that I can hopefully pass on to you as we do this uh, adventure together. And I'm not a huge history buff, so this is going to be fun for me to learn about all these different things you're going to tell us about. All right, episode one, for the very first time, I get to ask the question, oh brother, when art thou? Well, Neil, it's the night of 21st September, 1327, and according to the chronicle of Geoffrey the Baker, Edward II, King of England, is being murdered by having a red-hot poker shoved up his ass. 1327. This certainly uh, does not sound good for Edward II. So take us back, David, to 1327. What is the world like at this time? Well, at this point, the world is a smaller place. If you live in England, Europe is the only continent you know. You've heard vague rumors of Africa and Asia, and North America and South America are entirely undiscovered. Your world is feudal, too. Uh, It's got lords and knights who decide what the common people do and are themselves dictated to by, as it would have seemed at the time, greater powers, kings and emperors. But even if you're a king, not everything is a bed of roses as Edward II would probably be able to tell you. So we're in a feudal society, peasants, knights, lords, kings. Very interesting, very different from the time we listen, we live in today that we're listening to uh, podcasts. So tell us a little bit about Edward II. Well, Edward II is the son of Edward I. And he's the king of England, because that's how it worked in those times. If your father was the king, you got to be the king. But he's not necessarily viewed, even at the time, as being very good at his job. And part of that is that he's being judged by the standard set by his father, Edward I, who was a very powerful king, got the nickname the Hammer of the Scots from his powerful military adventures. But Edward II doesn't quite live up to that. So Edward I was this uh, military, very strong king. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Uh, 
He was involved in conquering Wales and conquering Scotland. He's expanding England's borders. He has a reputation, especially at the time among knights, as being a very strong king. But Edward II doesn't have that reputation at all. In point of fact, by the time we're talking about at the end of Edward II's reign, his most famous action is his crushing military defeat to the Scots at Bannockburn. So there's nothing like having to try and live up to a father who's uh, been a very powerful king, and now you have to try and take on this this mantle that you really earned only through your birthright, right? He didn't win any wars or he didn't win any elections to get to be king. He just was the king because his dad was the king. So tell us a little bit about Edward II, him coming into power and uh, what he was like. Well, for Edward II, when he came into power, obviously he was insecure, uh, looking to make a name for himself. But also, he reacted to it a little bit differently than a lot of other leaders at the time. Uh, One thing that he's really notorious for is picking favorites. One specific person, usually a man, who he selects at his court to be his favorite courtier and then really treats extremely well, gives a lot of luxury to these men. Even at the time, this gives this means that there are rumors going around that he's gay. But whether or not he is, it's a problem for the other nobles because whoever doesn't get to be the favorite feels locked out. I'm guessing they didn't like that very much. No, they were very unhappy about it. From the very beginning of his reign, uh, as he picked favorites, the other nobles would be bitter. But after his first military defeat at Bannockburn, things get worse because the the nobles look at him and view him as being weak and potentially somebody that they can push around. But he is retreating to his favorites and using them as a way to avoid the reality that things are going bad in his court. So things start to escalate. Now, how much power do the nobles have? Because we always think of kings as being, you know, the powerful, the leader, the ruler, you know, having this sort of unfettered power. How much power do the lords and the nobles in his court have to sort of hold them in check if they're not happy with him? The nobles have quite a bit of power, but it varies, of course, depending on which set of nobles you're talking about. The closest to the peasantry, your squires and knights, even though in theory there's a lot of power contained in them as a class, individually, none of them are able to use it very effectively. But when you get to the top of the pyramid, dukes and earls certainly can choose to make the king's life difficult if they want to. But in England at this time period, there's a specific, slightly weird exception to the regular rules. They're called the Marcher Lords. They live on the traditional borders of England, and they've been given a lot of power to ignore the king's decrees, in theory, so that they can help to hold these border areas. One of the problems that Edward II has is that they want to hold on to their privileges and their large private armies that they use to enforce them. 
And Edward II wants to reduce those privileges because his father, Edward I, has expanded England's borders and he doesn't view them as being useful anymore. That's another place where we start to see a lot of conflict that's going to end badly for one side or the other. All right, so how does it start to unfold? Well, very early in his reign, Edward II marries Isabella of France, sometimes called the She-Wolf of France. Isabella is a fascinating character in her own right, and she's not necessarily going to be very happy to be married off to a random English king. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. At the time, in the 1300s, people didn't care. A princess got married off as a diplomatic bargaining chip. She got chosen to marry Edward II, and it happened. The she-wolf of France, that's uh, quite the nickname. The Middle Ages, the Hammer of the Scots, the she-wolf of France, they are excellent for great nicknames. I will give them that. All right, David, we're going to need to come up with some uh, awesome nicknames for us on this podcast, but that's going to be a challenge for another day, maybe. Uh, so Edward is married off. Uh, what are his what are his goals or what are what is he doing uh, as a ruler? So Edward's trying in a lot of ways to centralize. This is a common repeating pattern with medieval kings all over Europe. The king wants to bring more power to himself at his court because that's in his interests. And the lords want to hold on to more power in their own distributed fiefdoms, because that's in their interests. And neither side is necessarily considering the interests of the country as a whole. How is the country doing as a whole, just uh, to take a quick break from the kings and lords? Well, one of the interesting things is, under Edward II's reign, initially at least, Probably things were staying mostly the same for the common people, but not for the lords, as they had in Edward I's reign. He was still raising armies. Uh, he went to war more than once. He just didn't win. Uh, but for the common people who never saw the spoils of victory when the king went off to war, whether he won or lost, that probably wouldn't make much of a difference. Edward is trying to centralize, but he's not the first king of England to try and He's not more successful than most. Overall, his reign probably didn't make a very great difference in the day-to-day -day life of the ordinary people. But as a threat, he made a large difference in the day-to-day -day life of the lords and nobles around his court. So what are the things he's doing to try and centralize power? Well, he's trying to reach out to the law, especially as a tool to have the king's justice run throughout the land rather than having each individual lord run his own courts. But he's also, he has these favorites. They're a very important part of his life, and therefore they become an important part of his strategy as he starts to annex lands from various places as they it becomes possible for him to seize them and give them to these favorites to run. This means that he's got at least one person who's running things for him because they owe him a great deal as opposed to running things for the major dukes around him, which has traditionally been the way things worked in England. And you mentioned that he went to war uh, as well. So who is he going to war with? 
While his first large war was against the Scots, his father, Edward I, had almost conquered Scotland, but was resisted by William Wallace, the famous uh, Scottish rebel. Portrayed by Mel Gibson. By the time Edward the fir- or Edward II comes to the throne, William Wallace is no longer leading. He's too old and he eventually dies of natural causes. But Robert the Bruce steps up to lead this Scottish rebellion against English rule. And Edward II's first war, he rides to war to try and crush the Scots. That doesn't turn out well for him. His tactics just don't stand up. And the Scots, motivated, hold fast, and defeat him at the Battle of Bannockburn. This is a dramatic defeat for him because it's his first major defeat. And it's against the Scots, the people that his father had defeated, which means that it makes him look very weak by comparison, even if his father never necessarily faced the level of challenges in Scotland that he does. So would he have actually led this army uh, to Scotland? Not like today where a king would, would sit at home while the generals do the work? No, he led it in person. He brought along his court. He brought along a large group of young nobles he liked who he intended to give knighthoods after his victory, which fell apart, as you might imagine. But he went north with all the majesty of a great English king, and then he had to flee the battlefield when things went wrong, which again is a major punishing blow to his personal prestige. So how did the Scots defeat uh, Edward at Bannockburn? Well, the key for the Scots is good tactical organization. They know that Edward is coming. They know that his army is mostly cavalry, mostly knights. And by training their troops to fight in formations with spears instead of scattering all over the battlefield like was traditional, and then... By picking his ground, Robert the Bruce's ground, very carefully, he's able to draw the English into a bad place for a cavalry charge, but force them to try anyway against solid phalanxes of Scottish troops who do not break. And that is ultimately what defeats the English on the field. Sounds like a classic, uh, brilliant battle strategy for a you know an undersized army facing a more maybe more powerful army, but using the local knowledge to their advantage. Using the local knowledge, using political knowledge, they know where Edward II is coming because they've deliberately besieged Stirling Castle, an important location, so that they can lure him to where they want him. Robert the Bruce is an experienced military commander by this point, and he is playing Edward II, a novice, very young king, like a fiddle. I have a feeling this is the sort of thing we're going to be seeing again in this podcast throughout history uh, with these types of mismatched battles. But let's stick with Edward II now. He loses at Bannockburn, and how does that change things? Well, it's the start of a lot of different processes. But probably the biggest one is that suddenly his nobles don't respect him, feel they can push him around. His first major favorite is a man named Piers Galveston who is a French noble who he decided was his favorite courtier and had given, by this point, a large amount of lands across England. This is when the nobles rise up, kidnap Gaveston, 
and execute him to make their point for the king that's a crisis yeah it certainly does sound like a crisis if your own lords are kidnapping and executing your favorite lord uh how does edward respond well he doesn't have the military force to just crush these lords immediately but he's no fool uh even though he's sometimes portrayed as one he uses careful diplomacy to bring the largest lords onto his side And then he makes a deliberate example, picks out a few nobles as scapegoats, and has them executed in retaliation. But all is not well at his court, especially since to get the nobles on side, he promised them that there would be no more favorites, no more picking one over the others. And does he stick to that? Only a very few years later, he's got a new favorite, Hugh Dispenser. And... He's doing all of the same things, all the same strategies he was using before. Do things end as badly for Hugh as they did for his first favorite? Well, Hugh and his father, also named Hugh Dispenser, known as Hugh Dispenser the Elder, last a lot longer. And as they gather power, they're very uh, overbearing and arrogant amongst the nobles. And in some ways, it looks at first like this strategy is going to work out for them because they're raising armies quickly and fighting some of their own battles in a way that Gaveston never did. And people think maybe they're going to win. But this is the point where they start coming into conflict with the queen, who naturally has always felt that she should be the favorite of the king, uh, which is probably not unnatural but now the dispensers are trying to take things away from her because they view her as a softer touch perhaps than some of the male lords that they're already in conflict with i think crossing the she-wolf of france doesn't sound like a great strategy it might not be it might not be things continue to move along uh the queen and the dispensers come to hate each other more and more And then the dispensers decide they want to pick on a marcher lord who Edward's never liked anyway. Not one of the biggest of the marcher lords, a guy called Roger Mortimer. And Roger Mortimer, who can't fight back because he's got relatively small land holdings, decides to flee to France. And if you're the dispensers, that sounds like victory. But if you remember, Isabella is from France, and she still has contacts there. And now she's got an experienced military general who's very bitter about what the dispensers and what Edward II have been up to, who's living there in contact with all of her political contacts in the country. And so what do uh, they dream up? Well, Isabella goes to France in person, in theory, to do some ordinary diplomatic negotiations with the King of France. But once she gets in contact with Roger Mortimer, she decides to do something slightly different. She hires an army of mercenaries, and with Roger Mortimer at their head, lands in England and raises the banner of revolution. So Edward II now has a full-on revolution on his hands, and it's led by his queen? It is led by his wife, yes. So, uh, we've already discussed that he's not the best military uh, leader 
and he's already seen as weak, what is he going to do about this revolution? Well, faced with obviously a giant crisis, he starts trying to raise troops. But unfortunately, he's underestimated Isabella yet again, but this time for the last time. Before she left for France, she already had a pretty good idea of what she was going to do when she got there. So she's already got had contacts with a bunch of the major lords who Edward II is turning to to raise his army. And secretly, they're already on her side. So Isabella seems to be uh, doing pretty well so far. How do things go in this revolution? Well, the rest of the revolution is very quick. In a very short period of time, Roger Mortimer and Isabella's troops are marching into London. Edward II has already fled the capital. The major lords are declaring for Isabella left and right. She declares that she's going to be a regent for her young son, Edward III. And Roger Mortimer and Isabella eventually manage to capture Edward II and lock him up. And they announce that eventually there's going to be some form of abdication or trial. But as the days slip by, it seems like Edward II doesn't want to do either of those things. He's locked up. How much of a choice does he have in the matter? Well, the one thing he's got is that a trial of a king in the Middle Ages is a crazy idea. Nobody's really thought through. Certainly Roger Mortimer and Isabella have not really thought through how they're actually going to do that, what kind of punishment they can inflict, whether or not any of that's legal. The theory at the time was that the law flowed from the king, not that the king obeyed the law. So it's hard to put him on trial. And the trouble with making him abdicate is that you need some way to make sure he can't slip away and then tell everybody that he didn't mean it because he doesn't want to abdicate. Right. So because of the time period, a, a trial for a king is a little bit different. Uh, they don't exactly have impeachment proceedings as we might today. So how does this all end for Edward II? You hinted earlier that it ends up ending pretty badly. Yes, it's always hard when we're talking about the Middle Ages to talk about very specific details of very specific days. But as I've said, we've got at least one chronicle that claims that he died in a particularly painful way. Uh, whether or not that's true isn't necessarily critical. It's certainly true that Isabella and Roger Mortimer put out a call for the lords to come and witness that Edward II is dead. They claim of natural causes, but it's certainly a very convenient time, and even by the standards of the day, Edward II is not, at this point, a particularly old man. So, nor does he have poor health. So certainly, it's suspicious. So you say our account comes from James the Baker? Jeffrey is that right? the Baker, yeah. Jeffrey the Baker. And who is Jeffrey the Baker? It seems odd that a baker would be writing down an account of a king's death. Well, this is one of the interesting things of the Middle Ages. The people who kept records were monks, but they didn't always have formal names because monks were recruited both from the nobility and the peasantry. A monk who used to be a noble would have a name and a last name, just as we do today, because that's how they ran things. 
but a monk who came from the peasantry wouldn't necessarily have a last name because that was still an innovation at this time. Not everybody had one. Jeffrey, evidently, is a monk who at some point, before he became a monk, worked as a baker. And when he went into the monastery, used that, used his former job as his new title. All right. And so what does Jeffrey say happened to Edward II? Well, Jeffrey claims that at the end of his life, Jeffrey's writing in Latin, so I don't have a word for word to give you. But he claims that Edward was seized in the night by a group of men working for Roger Mortimer, held down while one of them shoved a red-hot poker up his ass and held it there until he died. That seems to be about the worst way to go for poor Edward II and his ultimately, it uh, sounds like, pretty much a terrible <laughs> reign of England. He did a, a pretty terrible job as king, it sounds like. What's the ending of the story? Uh, does Edward III, uh, Isabella's son, become the king of England? Well, the ending of the story continues to be dramatic. Edward III grows up. At this point, he's almost a teenager, but in a few years, he is a teenager, uh, as we would consider. At that time, they would have called him a man, and perhaps they weren't wrong, because as the Royal court moves from palace to palace. Edward III finds out that one of these castles that they're living in has a secret passageway in and out. And he sneaks out of the castle, recruits a team of people who are unhappy with Roger Mortimer, just the way that Edward III apparently is. And they, one night, sneak back into the castle using the secret passageway that only Edward III knows about burst in and seize both Roger Mortimer and Isabella. His own mother. His own mother. Declare Roger Mortimer a traitor and execute him. But he immediately pardons Isabella, blames everything on Roger as being the real villain, and goes on to have an extremely long reign as the King of England, which will be very action-packed in its own right, because he's the man who starts the Hundred Years' War with France. Wow. Well, that's uh, quite a few twists and turns there as we go through Edward II's life and then on to uh, Edward III. A very fascinating tale, David, with a uh, red-hot ending. Thanks for that. Always happy to expand your knowledge horizons a little bit. <laughs> All right. Before we go, how about we play a quick game here and uh, wrap up the show with a game uh, David, it's July 1st, Canada Day here in Canada as we're recording this. So I thought we'd play a little game that I am uh, creatively titling on this day. It's pretty simple. How it works is that I'm going to ask you about some things and you're going to tell me whether they happened on July 1st. Sound good? All right. Hit me. Our first one takes us back to the American Civil War and the Battle of Gettysburg. Did it begin on July 1st, 1863? Oh, I am not a Civil War historian, although that's a fascinating time period in its own right. I'm going to guess no. Oh, you'd be incorrect. 
the Battle of Gettysburg actually did start on July 1st, ended on July 3rd, and it was the costliest land battle of the American Civil War with over 46,000 casualties. Okay, I got five questions, David, so you can get back into the black here. Uh, Another one, did this happen on July 1st? 1903 the start of the first tour de france bicycle race of course it's still going today did it it started in 1903 was it july 1st all right i'm not willing to guess no twice in a row so this time i'm gonna guess yes and you would be correct it did start on july 1st 1903 went till the 19th of july and was won by maurice garin all right evened it up david Our next one is a birthday. Charles Tupper, the Canadian uh, Prime Minister, the sixth Prime Minister of Canada, was he born in 1821 on July 1st, the day that would later become Canada Day? I'm going to say yes. Oh, you're close, but he's actually born July 2nd, 1821. So just off by a day for Charles Tupper being a Prime Minister born on Canada Day. All right, uh, two left here, David. Next one's another American one. Uh, and zip codes, were they introduced in 1963 on July 1st? I'll guess yes. Yes, you're right. July 1st, 1963 was the start of the zip code system in the United States. Of course, we all know 90210. But uh, if you're a Canadian trying to pass yourself off as an American, here's a good zip code to use. 79936 is an El Paso area zip code. And it's the most populous zip code in the United States with 114,000 people living in that zip code. So it's a likely one. All right, David, one more for you here. 1914, was it July 1st in 1914 that the German Empire declared war on the Russian Empire at the start of World War I? You know, Neil, I've got a feeling that it was later in July than that. So I am going to say no. Oh, you're right. It was later than that. It was August 1st that the German Empire declared war on the Russian Empire at the start of World War I. So good job, David, in our little game of On This Day. Thanks for playing along and uh, thanks for telling us this great story, David. I was so glad to share it with you, Neil. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou with the He-Wolf of Canada and the Hammer of the Canadians. I'm giving us nicknames, David. Do you like it? We may still have to workshop that, all right? (laughs) We'll work on it. If you're looking for our actual nicknames to find us online, please visit us. Obrother.ca is our website. If you want to send us an email or a tweet to let us know how we're doing, obrotherwhenartthou at outlook.com is our email, and our Twitter handle is at whenartthou. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more crazy history next time.